0: Well, last week we began our Christmas series with a focus on understanding the significance of prophecy in the Bible uh, and looking at a few specific prophecies around the birth of Jesus. So what if I told you today that I could predict uh, with complete accuracy an event to take place 10 years from now? Would you believe me? Right? What about 100 years from now? Right? Yeah, I appreciate your honesty. Thank you for your trust, right? (laughs) Uh, you know, 200 years, 300, I think 700 years. I mean, when we talk about biblical prophecy, we're talking about things that were predicted uh, several hundred years in advance of when they actually happened. And so trust is a big factor in those things. Now, to kind of give us some glimpse of what we're talking about in everyday life, at times we find ourselves faced with questions of whether or not to trust someone uh, who gives us guidance in current decisions with a future outcome. Here's what I mean by that. Here's a couple examples, and if this is your profession, that's not a knock on you. I'm just using an example, right? So uh, financial planners, right? If you happen to have a financial planner, you sit down with him or her, uh, they're going to talk with you about, hey, what what's it look like the market's going to do? Let's kind of predict, if we can, you know, down the road so that we can make good investments now. That's one area where we have to trust somebody who has some measure of trying to help us understand what's going to happen down the road. Uh, doctors, another one. Physicians, right? Uh, helping us understand if we're facing something, the likelihood of a treatment or a medication that will actually work, you know, six months, a year from now, whatever it might be. Uh, there's a couple of examples which we, in daily life, kind of find ourselves in position of needing to uh, talk with someone and trust someone who uh, helps us understand what the future might be like. Now, these are predictions based on data and study and trends and so on, right? And I just want to be clear, like, that's not prophecy, right? I don't think there's a single financial planner in the room that would want to claim to be a prophet or a uh, a doctor that would want to claim to be a prophet, right? Uh, It's different. Um, In an entirely different category, we see an openness of Christians even uh, to other manners of kind of predicting the future. Um, We see psychics and fortune tellers on the rise. We see mystics and spiritualists and mediums and sorcerers and... Uh, people engaging activities like Ouija boards and seances and palm reading and channeling and so on. And now clearly in the scripture, we are called upon as followers of Christ to avoid and to flee those things uh, absolutely, right? Uh, of a demonic kind of source and so on. Uh, if you want a place uh, to read on that yourself, Deuteronomy chapter 18 as a great place to go. You can check that out this afternoon. Uh, but I also want to be clear, like those things are not in line with biblical prophecy. So what is prophecy? As we mentioned last week, prophecy is proclaiming the truth of God with a clear call to repentance and obedience. Right. So prophecy is a proclamation. It's a declaring of what God has already spoken and with a clear call to repentance and obedience. Most often, prophecy is done in a manner of forth or proclaiming that truth. It's also done, though, in a manner of foretelling or predicting the future that at times we see in the Bible has both a near fulfillment, like meaning, you know, just soon after, and it also has a much distant future fulfillment at times as well. Prophecy is a very unique and intentional way that God set apart his message from all other religious or spiritual beliefs in the world. Just think about this for a moment. There is no other religious system of belief that fulfills predictive prophecy like the God of the Bible. And so this is one of the things that sets apart the Christian faith. It provides a clear indication of who Jesus is. I mentioned to you one of my goals in this uh, four-week series is kind of the wow factor, to, to draw us into an understanding of prophecy in such a way that that causes us to not, you know, it, sometimes the Bible uses the fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is not a running from him. The fear of the Lord is a sense of awe. It's a sense of being drawn into who he is, and in that sense, our hearts being humbled, and we just kind of respond in a way of, oh, like, this is amazing, right? That's the wow factor of prophecy. The wow factor is wrapped up in the fact that it's 100% accurate. What we see in the scriptures foretold even at times hundreds of years prior to the event is 100% accurate. The wow factor is in the multiple details or the specificity of what God declares will happen. The wow factor is in the number of prophecies. Uh, Many theologians believe there's up to 300 prophecies fulfilled by the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And the likelihood of this happening is literally astounding. Now, if you you weren't here last week, I encourage you to jump online and listen to uh, the study that I mentioned that was done now uh, several years ago back in 1950, which was an attempt to visualize the overwhelming possibility that one man could fulfill all of these prophecies. It's really astounding. And here's what that boils down to in my heart, and I hope in your heart, is that, man, God makes things clear. God makes things clear. Romans chapter 1, we read that God's on display in the midst of creation in such a way that we are without excuse, the Scripture says, in knowing God. The uh, James Webb Telescope, I don't know if you've seen the images over the course of the last year that have been coming out from the the most recent telescope that that, uh, NASA sent up. And some of the images of that and the breadth of our universe. And what does is, what is Psalm 19.1 uh, say? The heavens declare the glory of God, right? Day after day, they pour forth a speech. And, and so God has created the universe in a way that, that clearly reveals who he is. God has given to us his word that clearly reveals who he is. And the prophetic fulfillment in the birth of Jesus alone is God removing all doubt about who he is. Jesus is. Now, for our Christmas series, we are limiting our focus to just a few of the prophecies specifically fulfilled in the birth and young years of Jesus's life. Last week, uh, we spoke of the fact that God, through the prophet Micah, had said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the small little town outside of Jerusalem. That's where the Messiah would be born. And sure enough, God used a census That we read about in Luke chapter 2, right, given by Caesar Augustus, that would take Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, and wouldn't you know it, at exactly the time that Jesus was to be born. What a coincidence, right? No. God working, right, giving to us a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's build upon that fulfilled prophecy by looking at another uh, that Davis has uh, already mentioned, and that is the prophet Hosea. Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. If you're not familiar with the history of Israel, there came a point in time where the the country was split into a northern and southern portion. Jerusalem remained the capital city of the southern kingdom, as it was called, and and Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. And so Hosea prophesied in a time in the 8th century B.C. when he was declaring to the northern kingdom of Israel, listen, if you don't get your act together... uh, God is going to send the Assyrian army uh, to take you captive, and one of the most intriguing things about Hosea is uh, this that God commanded him to marry a prostitute as an illustration or as an analogy to the people of Israel of their unfaithfulness. Just imagine that I mean the prophets were asked by God to do some pretty uh, some pretty amazing things right and this is one of those you step back and go really God God commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute, yeah. Why? So that it was like this huge object lesson to the nation of Israel saying, this is how you are treating me in your unfaithfulness. And so God called Israel to repentance and obedience uh, through Hosea, but they did not respond. And and he predicted to them, as I mentioned, that Assyria would take them captive if they did not repent. And certainly God did that and began in 740 B.C., and continued until 722 B.C. when Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, was finally overtaken. Here's one of the statements that Hosea makes in his, uh, in his voice, right, as God was using him. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if Hosea was a prophet, and we're kind of focusing upon that predictive prophecy today of talking about things that would happen in the future, you might be asking the question, is that a prophecy? Right? Doesn't it say that out of Egypt, I called my son? I mean, Scott, you know, not to you know, be uh, adverse here, but isn't that past tense, right? Wouldn't Hosea say something more like, out of Egypt, I will call my son? So how is this a prophecy? Well, in Hosea's context, he was talking to the people of Israel about God's care and love for them and how they had responded with disobedience like an adulterous people, as illustrated by Hosea's own wife. Now, through Hosea, God reminded Israel of his nurturing Love for them. As a father loves his children, so God loved his people, Israel. And God used Israel's time in Egypt to grow them as a nation. Almost like an infant, if you will, they went into Egypt numbering 70 people, as Genesis chapter 46 tells us. The sons of Jacob and their families numbered 70 people. And When they came out 430 years later, according to Numbers chapter 1, there were 600,000 fighting men. That's not all the men, right? And we know they counted by men in that day. And so 600,000 men, some believe there were as many as 2 million Israelites that exited out of Egypt. So as far as numbers go, God grew Israel from infancy to adulthood while in Egypt and he said, out of Egypt I called my son. Where is that from, right? Uh, What is he talking about? What is he referencing? Well, as Israel was in Egypt, we read about in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, that God spoke to Moses, the one whom he asked to go and to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. This is what he said to Moses, tell Pharaoh this, Thus says the Lord: Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And we see the unfortunate fulfillment of that. Pharaoh did not relent, and the final plague that God uh, brought upon the people of Israel—excuse uh, me, upon the people of Egypt—was the death of the firstborn, and Pharaoh's son was included. Um, But here he says, tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now, God had already established his covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants, right, the people of Israel. So what is clear in all of this is that God used Hosea to remind Israel of this covenant. Remember, they are a people living in disobedience. They're worshiping other gods and so on. And God is reminding them of his love for them and of his covenant relationship with them. And so he said, Remember, I brought you out of Egypt, right? Through Hosea, he's calling the people to remember God's faithfulness to them. Now, you might still be asking, how is that a prophecy about Jesus, right? It's a good question. So let's go to Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, we see that the wise men came to Jesus. He brought their gold and frankincense and myrrh, those incredible gifts meant for a king that they brought and laid uh, beside him. And then they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they went home a different way. And we pick up the story in verse 13 of Matthew 2. It says, now when they had departed, those was the wise men, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, So if we were just reading Matthew, right, and we got to that point, we'd have to stop and ask, who said that? <laughs> who said that? This is that phrase that Matthew quotes a dozen times or so in his gospel account. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew gets that specific. And then he mentions this phrase, out of Egypt I called my son. So that's where we go. We find it in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which we already read. But again, we go, how is that a prophecy about Christ. I mean, Matthew obviously believed that Joseph and Mary taking Jesus to Egypt was not a coincidence. He believed and accepted it as fulfillment of prophecy. Egypt became a refuge for Joseph and Mary and Jesus, just like Egypt was a refuge the first time for the nation of Israel. Remember what took them there? Famine. Famine took them there. And Joseph, God had already orchestrated things in such a way that Joseph was present in Egypt. He was second in command. He was the one in charge of making sure that during this famine that God predicted right, that the food would be enough. And so as Joseph is reconnecting with his brothers because they came seeking food for their family, eventually they bring the whole family and they're reunited with Joseph. And it's a good and glorious thing. Egypt was a place of provision and life even though it eventually became a place of slavery. So through Hosea, God is linking two historical events. Through the prophet Hosea, he is calling the people of Israel in Hosea's time to remember. Remember God's covenant relationship. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember His provision and His blessing and His love and his grace towards you, right? And his call to remember was, in a sense, that they would repent and return to that loving God. And also through Hosea was this future fulfillment in Jesus. And this teaches us an important nuance of biblical prophecy. Now, we often think, once again, prophecy is kind of prediction fulfillment, right? Prediction, future fulfillment. But another aspect of prophecy, according to the New Testament spirit-inspired authors, shows us that an Old Testament prophecy can become sometimes a historical event that prefigures or foreshadows something similar and more significant in future in the future. And, that, and this actually increases the "Wow factor, if you will, in power of biblical prophecy. Um, incredibly so. Why? Because God was not just predicting something through Hosea, for example, 750 years before it happened. No, he was at work in the circumstances way before Hosea. Right? He was at work in the circumstances that took place some 1125 years prior to Hosea. And by conservative measures, the people of Israel entered Egypt around 1876 BC. So if Hosea is prophesying in 750 BC, that means what he said and what he was calling attention to was God was bringing fulfillment way back here in the past, even uh, before he was talking, right? So God fulfilling, God working, God present to bring about those circumstances. And then the freedom, uh, the exodus taking place in 1446 B.C. So, uh, So what God was doing was already present way back here. God active, God using Hosea to say, hey, look at this, right? And see God at work, see his love and his provision. And then as Matthew is drawing our attention to saying, and you know what? That's not it. That's not just all that's happening. But God way back here was working things in such a way to bring about a fulfilled prophecy in the life of Jesus in the future. Um, this is the level of understanding of God's power and His redemptive plan throughout the Scripture that you don't get from just reading a verse hanging on the wall, right? I mean, as we look at the scope of Scripture, I want to show you a picture of a, an arc graph, if you will. Uh, it went around this week a little bit on Instagram. Some of you I saw reposted it. Um, this is a study produced by Chris Harrison. He and another guy. You can get it at chrisharrison.net if you would like. There's a free copy uh, version of it. But what they did is they did a study of all of the cross-references of the Bible. They did the study based on the King James Version. They came up with 63,779 cross-references in the Bible, meaning that's how many times the Bible links one aspect of its teaching to another, right? This is a, a graph that kind of illustrates the, the magnitude of that. All of the white and gray lines at the bottom represent the chapters of the Bible, the longest one being right in the middle, Psalm 119. And uh, you, so you see uh, all of the, the times the Bible references itself. Now, the beauty of that and the amazing nature of it, what draws us into that is realizing that God used Uh, 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years to write it. And to think that, that there's such a correlation, right? There's such beauty in the, in the symmetry of the Word of God, the one story that is being told throughout. It's absolutely astounding. And so when we look at someone like Hosea, and we see that Matthew certainly was, was uh, uh, convinced that the teaching of Hosea was, was not just about the past of what happened with Israel, but also about the future of what was going to take place in the Messiah, in Christ, that he would come out of Egypt. As we look at all of that, it just is something that draws us into this astounding realization of the word of God. And Matthew says, then in verse 19, he says, When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. The fulfillment, right? That the Messiah would come out of Egypt. So I mentioned to you goal number one was the wow. And I pray that just in reflecting on some of that this morning, that it draws your heart into amazement of who God is, the power of his word, and what he has revealed to us about himself in it. And the second question that... We want to spend our time on is asking questions about God, because we can ask the question, what does fulfilled prophecy teach us about God? Uh, Our view of God begins with questions oftentimes. Last week, we talked about, is God trustworthy? Can we trust him to do what he says he'll do? Is he trustworthy? Can I trust him with my life? Can I trust God with my family or my finances or my relationships? Can I trust God with my marriage and my friendships? Can I trust God with my, in my singleness, in my career, my education? Can I trust God with my sin and my salvation? I think the answer is yes. We can trust God to act in accordance with what is of His glory and our good. So a second question I want to delve into to finish our time today is, is God in control? How does fulfilled fulfilled prophecy help answer this question? Is God in control? Uh, A word often used, is God sovereign? By sovereignty, we mean that God ordains everything. God ordains everything. Now, this is a really big topic and a really big conversation that's been discussed and debated for several hundred years. So I don't have the magic bullet for you today, all right, uh, to, to answer it all. But we're going to talk through this today because it is really significant for us to uh, delve into considering the, the, the power and the authority of God, the sovereignty of God. So what do I mean by ordains? God ordains everything. The word ordains means that everything is under the rule of God or His authority. In other words, God has established all things. Nothing is by chance or random. That's God's sovereignty, that He has ordained everything. Let's break it down a little more into a couple of categories, thinking about God's will and His sovereignty. Uh, first of all, we have God's determined will. To speak of things that God causes, that God does in His Way in His time, His glory, His purpose, God causing things that accomplish His will, God causing things to grow us and teach us. The universe and even we ourselves are His creation, and we are all under His complete sovereign control. We looked at a few weeks ago, if you're with us, Acts chapter 17. What did that tell us as Paul is declaring truth to the philosophers in Athens? And he says to them, Listen, uh, I want you to know God created everything and that this God is the one who even determined the times and places where we should live. What does that reveal to us? I found myself a couple of times this week discussing 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 through 31 and 1 Corinthians 12 which in both of those instances in 1 Corinthians 1 it speaks to the fact of of God choosing the weak things of this world to to shame the wise and God choosing and God choosing and it's just repeated in there probably five or six times i didn't write it down to to give it to you exactly but five or six god chose god chose god chose and then you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 he's talking about the church the body of Christ you and me sitting here today part of this people of, of God. And, and and the word tells us God is the one who draws us together and has determined the body of Christ as he chose. We realize too in Romans chapter 12, Verses 3-8, through eight, great passage for you to read this afternoon. Romans 12, through three, 8 let me just read verse 3 for you. And the Apostle Paul is expressing this. For by the grace given to me, listen, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than they ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, we read passages like that, and we can't just overlook them, can't just brush them off. What those passages do is cause us to stop and pause and think for a second. How in control is God? How sovereign is he? God chose. God chose. God chose, God determined the times. God, God is the one who, who has assigned a measure of faith. That's like, yeah. And in this, we realize God has this determined will. In a sense, by determined meaning, God has, God has chosen certain times and certain things and certain uh, uh, actions that will transpire to accomplish His will. And then we have God's permissive will. Some refer to it as God's revealed will. We think of it in terms of what God permits. So we have what God causes, and we have what God permits God permits what is good, right? We look at the world around us, we realize there's good that happens. We get so focused on the negative sometimes, we, we fail to realize that. Sometimes I catch myself watching news or something. But they just talk about the good things that happen, right? All right God permits the good that happens. God, God does permit the effects of sin that goes on as well. Living in a fallen, broken world. God permits the pain and the suffering, tragedy. There's wars and deception and hatred and prejudice and injustice and the list goes on. We know those things, right? The realization of the presence of Satan, whom God is permitting to have freedom right now, to wreak havoc. The Bible tells us that he's on the prowl, seeking whom he may kill and destroy. We have this world in which we live that is infiltrated and broken with the reality and presence of sin, and we have the presence of sin in our own heart, right? God permits that. These things are not glorifying to God, yet He permits them, and they are not happening outside of His sovereign control. Sin means this world is not as God created it to be. Um, That's part of the realization we come to terms with. Even death is not outside God's control and sovereignty, right? I mean, isn't he the one that declared it would happen if we chose to sin? What did he say to Adam and Eve? If you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. God is the one who sovereignly determined that that's what would happen. So even that is not outside of his sovereign ruling of our life. Sin will be dealt with in God's sovereignty, even though he permits sin to happen and take place in His sovereignty, His determined will, there is accountability. There's a time of judgment that God has declared will come. So God's permissive will, we know that in the Word, it, it, it indicates we have choice within this permissive will also, right? If you have glanced at the big boulder we have out by the door here in the last few weeks, Joshua twenty four fifteen. choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? I mean, Scripture indicates we have this sense of choice in the matter as well because God wants us to, to obey Him out of love, not out of, not out of a, a being a robot. So God's ability to work within the midst of our choosing as well as He determines. God is the one who has established the cause and effect of our choices, the consequences, the boundaries of our choices. So let me, let me try to illustrate it this way, and it might, I mean, any, any way we try to illustrate who God is, is just it'll fall short at some point. But let me just try to illustrate it. So if I just hold my hand for you, right, and think of the, the, the outer rim of my hand, um, the surface area, it represents all activity of all time among all people from eternity past to eternity future, Right? It, it, it belongs to God. And within this boundary, then, God is chosen by His determined will. God has chosen to enable us to have some measure of free will, but it all happens within the bounds of His sovereign, His, His sovereignty. It's, that's what we mean when we talk about God's determined will, His permissive will. The prophecy we focused on today helps build our understanding of God's sovereignty, that He ordains or rules over all things, that He's actively engaged, even works in suffering caused by our sin, or suffering that's caused just simply because of sin. Some tragedies in the world, just they just happen because of the reality and the presence of sin. The amazing thing is, because God is sovereign, He can work even in the midst of that kind of tragedy. The desert place, For the Israelites, since we're talking about Hosea and out of Egypt, I will call my son. Where did did God lead them? It was to a desert. Because of their disobedience, God said, you'll wander in that desert for 40 years. But listen to how God loved them, even in the midst of that hardship. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, he says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God frees Israel, they grumble, they complain. As a result, God determines they'll be disciplined for 40 years, keeping them from the promised land. The generation that came out of Egypt didn't get to enter the promised land. But all the while, God is growing them and testing them, using that for his glory and their good. As we think about Mary and Joseph, the fulfillment of that prophecy of Hosea in the future. Listen, Egypt was not a convenient thing for Mary and Joseph. It was not the plan. They went to Bethlehem for the census. They had baby Jesus. I would imagine, I think, that at some point they were planning to return to Nazareth. Maybe not, because it seems like they had spent some time in Bethlehem already by the time the wise men showed up. But listen, think about Mary and Joseph's story. There They are the ones who surrendered to God's will with Jesus. When 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 the angels showed up to Mary and told her what was going to happen, she she submitted herself and surrendered herself to that determined will of God. God had determined he was going to send his son. And she said yes, and we have a wonderful song of praise from Mary in the scripture. And then when the when 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 Mary did that, she did that knowing that boy there's going to be gossip about being pregnant and not being married, and, and actually that meant she would supposed to be put to death and, and all of this, and so and then Joseph uh, is, is trying to divorce her quietly because he's leery of all this, and angel shows up to him, and what does Joseph do? Joseph submits himself to the call of the angel as well, to the plan of God, to the determined will of God, so all Mary and Joseph had done so far up to this point is what? Obey God, and what does God further ask them to do? to pick up in the middle of the night and go to Egypt. How about that? And they do it. How inconvenient. Yet God was sovereignly working his plan to fulfill a prophecy so that you and I can sit here some 2,000 years later and look and go, man, you see what God did? Even in the suffering and the hardship, Sovereign. So to pull it together here to finish, here's what I think is important for us to contemplate in these things, is that prophecy demonstrates that God sovereignly reigns while we actively live and wait. And by actively living and waiting as we follow Jesus, right, we're, we're seeking to, as Mary and Joseph did, respond with hearts of obedience and to live for his glory, to the praise of his glory every day. Every day we're living to the praise of his glory. We want to filter everything about our life, the good and the bad, the hard and the joyful. Right? We want to filter everything about our life through the fact that God is sovereign. And he's working a plan, and a plan at times that we may never even Realize. At times we attend you know, major events and things like that. And <coughs> you go to a huge wedding, for example, you know, and we go and as guests, we just go sit and enjoy and eat the meal and maybe dance a little bit or whatever and go home. And maybe at times we never even think twice about all that was going on behind the scenes, right? To make that happen. In a sense, sometimes we just live life, and because we get so narrowly focused upon our world, and our needs, and our, uh, you know, things we pursue for happiness and all of that, we 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 never step back and just look and go, God. You are sovereign in the midst of it, and I want to see you work, and I want to live for the, to the praise of your glory in the midst of it. I want you to use this, whether it's suffering or joy or whatever. I want you to use every circumstance of my life to refine me and to grow me and to, to, to mold me into more like Jesus every day. And he will. And he's working toward that end, even when we don't see it. So much so that there's a hope that we have, Right? the hope of a future in eternal glory where there is no more pain, where there is no more suffering, there is no more sorrow. And for those who follow Christ, man, there's a plan. There's a good plan. And it's unfolding right now. Even when maybe we have a hard time seeing it completely. The Bible tells us we see dimly in this world. We can't understand things as God understands them fully, right? But let's trust him. Is he trustworthy? Yes. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. The Bible declares both. And we'll continue down the journey of this the next couple of weeks. But let me pray for us now as our worship team comes. And we're going to finish today with a song. And we're just going to go out singing and let this song be our response. But let me pray for us in this moment. Father, we love you. We thank you. Um, Today, we acknowledge your sovereignty. And uh, as we contemplate that, Lord, we know it's hard for us to, to fully grasp. In one sense, we can't because we're limited in our understanding in this world. The Lord, your word declares it. You've made yourself clear. You've used things like prophecy to point us to truth not only truth of the event, but truth of who you are. Lord, help us to be reminded this Christmas season that you are in control. Even in the things you permit, you are sovereign. It doesn't happen outside of you. So Lord, strengthen us in that. May that truth and that reality draw us in to walk with you every day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.